0: Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm in London with my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper and Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us all the way from Maine in the USA is the excellent Ellen Sander. Hi, Ellen.
1: Hello, everybody. And hello, London. I miss you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Ellen. It's wonderful to have you with us today, Ellen, especially since it's 50 years since you published your book, Trips. Rock life in the 60s, which we'll be talking about. We'll also listen later to clips from an audio interview with the late, great Robert Palmer. But to start off, one of the most compelling things about Trips for me, Ellen, is that there's this almost sort of autobiographical kind of thread that runs through it and parallels the sort of social and musical revolutions that you're writing about, you're chronicling. Could you be for us? more precisely autobiographical, and and tell us about a bit about your upbringing and how you first fell in love with music.
1: All right. First of all, I am of that age. I am almost 80, as we're speaking now, where all of the social and cultural upheaval of the 60s happened to me at the most impressionable time of my life. Mm -hmm. So that had a big thing to do with it. And I was born in New York City, and I was raised in various parts of the city and also the suburbs, and back in the city for high school. And it was, as I describe it, the concurrence of events of graduating high school, JFK, who was like the first president uh, I ever voted for, and it seemed like a very youthful and connected administration, He was assassinated, and then shortly after, it was the Beatles. And so the emotional shift of that time was... It was it was just like an opening, an outpouring of emotion. Plus, there was the antagonism of the youth against the administration, the war in Vietnam, the civil rights movement was in full flower at that time. So all of those cultural things converged on me when I was a teenager, an unhappy teenager from uh, an unhappy family life, trying to kind of find my way into my own life, and then this music came pouring in that all of a sudden verified that life was good, that it was important to be an individual, that it was important to stand up for what you believed in, that it was important to feel and express joy. And for me, it was important to express it in, say, as public a way as I could. I'd always been a writer from the time I was a child, and I just mm-hmm. decided that was what my writing was going to be about. I had started I had started poetry at that point, but I kind of abandoned it when this opportunity to write about the music that was affecting my generation so much. And the other thing was that the established music writers at the time, they didn't really understand or relate to or particularly like the rock and roll that was happening. Sure, and, and so it was left to, you know, this new generation of writers with this to be able to kind of invent this. So I, I think that's as concise as I can be, unless you have a specific question. <laughs> um, well, I mean, one <laughs> thing I, I'm reading trips.
2: Absolutely, I'm really hugely enjoying it. I loved your account of Greenwich Village and the folk scene. I mean, how much was that part of your sort of day to day experience? Was that where you were at?
1: Yes, I would I would leave my house every day. I lived in the Murray Hill area at the time, not too far from the from Greenwich Village, and I would just mm-hmm. I would just hang out there day and night. I started it in high school, but my mother caught me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I said, Listen, Mom, it's really wonderful. Come down with me sometime. You'll really like it. So she she thought about it and she came down with me and then she went, No, no more. No more. <laughs>
0: well Well, that backfired no more for you or just or no more for her both
1: (laughs) both both you know as long as if you're living here no more and you know she would just watch my comings and goings so she'd try to stop so like as soon as i was out
0: of high school i just moved out i think you mentioned sing out in that chapter was there anything you read in any music magazine of any kind but say particularly like the folk periodicals that encouraged you or made you think that you might want to write about music i mean i'm thinking about paul nelson and writers like that was any were there any writers who sort of got your attention
1: oh paul nelson definitely and all the writers of sing out that was the, that was really the first music magazine i mm-hmm. ever really read until i met paul williams who was brought uh crawdaddy down from boston to new york city and i met him shortly after that and we were very close friends for the rest of his life, Right. and he was a big, big inspiration for me.
0: Yeah, it's coming up for the anniversary—the tenth anniversary of his of his death, actually. So we're going to do something on RBP oh, at good. the end of this, the end of March. Yeah, yeah. How did you get your foot in the door at like Hullabaloo? Was, was that any, was that to do with oh, with Paul Nelson?
1: No, that was Danny Fields. Oh, it's Danny. Yeah, Danny. I believe it was Danny who, who uh, connected me with Hullabaloo. And
0: was that, your, Was that the, would have been the first writing that you did? Maybe? I think so, yeah. Yeah.
1: It, was either, yeah. it was either Hullabaloo or Circus. I can't remember which one.
2: Hullabaloo became Circus in early 69. That's right. Is that it? It was Hullabaloo. Then it became Circus, yeah. I just renamed
1: Okay so I guess it was circus I should know <laughs> sometimes <laughs> I have a hard time remembering remembering this but but anyway I met Danny through I guess I met him in the village and we got to talking, and he said, "Well, you know, let me know if you want to be connected to any people." I said, "I want to be connected to everybody." You know, I feel like I have a lot to say. So he set me up with an interview with Zal Yasnovsky which went very badly. And I came back to him. <laughs> <laughs> Did it was it was like right after some kind of bust having to do with the with eleven spoonful, which I was told he didn't want to talk about. That it was not you know that there was a risk for him talking about it legally or whatever. I said, I'm not really interested in that. I'm interested in the music and everything like that. He didn't really want to do the interview. They made him do the interview. I found this out later. It was very uncooperative. I went back to Danny. and I said, I really messed up. I mean, he was just... <laughs> I painted it, you know. I, I I don't know. I maybe maybe I'm not cut out with this. But, no, it's a great story. right? that, <laughs> and I went, oh! And everybody loved that article. You know how he misbehaved during this interview. He's, you know turning around
0: and putting his feet up on the desk and. Well, he was a pretty zany, pretty zany guy, wasn't he, Sally? I mean, not a, not an easy yeah. person to interview. I yeah,
2: imagine. but wasn't wasn't there a sort of a Complication around the whole thing about that drug bust and who then talked to the cops because um, suddenly the, the spoonful's credibility amongst the hip crowd evaporated. yeah. Because of this story about someone was snitching or something along those lines. I, I can't remember. I yeah.
1: didn't know anything about it. I just, you know, kind of wanted to talk to him. It came with a list of questions and he was sure. like, oh... <laughs> Summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirty and gritty. Bent down isn't it a pit Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around people looking half dead or walking on the sidewalk hotter than a match yeah. I had done, I think before that, I was working for a magazine called Musical Merchandise Review, which which was about for uh music wholesalers. And through that, I got connected with Billboard and I wrote an article about the blues for them explaining or or exploring really uh, where the blues fit in commercially. And they liked that a lot. So I was, you know, it was kind of getting my feet wet in a lot of yeah, different yeah. camps.
2: One thing I, I, I was reading was your your account of the Monterey festival, which must have been pretty, it sounds like it was an extraordinary experience for you.
1: Oh, it was definitely was. It was life-changing. There were only 2000 people there it was an incredible show but the spirit of the of the place was wonderful mm-hmm. and i wrote derek taylor for press pass and yes. i was you know vir- virtually unknown and he just liked my letter and he sent me you know a all access press pass
3: that's
4: great you
1: know so i went there and i i got there early and i you know i was there every minute of every day and uh, on stage backstage under the stage at one point. Yes. <laughs> I got I got frightened. The who? I got Yeah, the frightened. who scared you. <laughs> Yes. It it's it it scared me to death. I had, I had no idea. So I uh jumped under the stage at one point because I was just I was afraid they were gonna burn the place down. You know, but it was it was pretty exciting. Yeah, but by the time Jimi Hendrix came on, I just wasn't afraid anymore, and he did almost burn the place down. But I love <laughs> the fact
3: that your nickname was Chicken Delight.
1: Yes, that's actually the name of a fast food chicken. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually the name of a of a of a product. This is where it all
3: ends. <laughs>
0: Ellen, I've watched the complete interview that you gave for the American Masters David Geffen documentary. I hadn't watched Isn't realized. that amazing? They, yes. they
1: call me in to talk about David Geffen. They fly me into New York and they set me up and all they want to talk about is Laura. <laughs> yeah,
0: <that's, laughs> yeah, well, it is fascinating hearing you talk about Laura. I didn't real i hadn't realized how well you knew her, and um, there's some fascinating stuff in there it's also fascinating to hear about how you 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 know you got to know David Geffen before anybody knew who he was and how you then become quite pally with all those very important movers and shakers you know david and Elliot Roberts. And in the end, that, that, and then you meet, you meet Joni Mitchell as well. I think you cross her path when Elliot Roberts is starting to manage her. And all that sort of leads somewhat circuitously to your, your spending a lot of time in, in LA and kind of observing the birth of that sort of Laurel Canyon scene. One of the things I love about trips is that it almost, it's almost difficult to work out what you're present for and what you're not it feels like you're you're there a witness to the kind of you know a witness to history how much i mean how much of that the way you write about it how much of it is i was actually in the room and how much of it is like imagined i was in the room
1: maybe 80 percent i was in the room
0: yeah I mean, it, when you're writing about Crosby, Stills, and Nash, for example, and you're writing about oh Crosby's- no, I was
1: in that room. <laughs>
0: yeah, I was yeah.
1: definitely in that room.
0: <laughs> I mean, in a sense, it doesn't matter whether you were or not because it's so vivid, and you just you're there, really, at the, the at the birth of these extraordinary things. And you knew people like Crosby and Nero so well, and I think that's as one of the first key music writers of that era. It's it. the 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 access you had ellen is sort of critical isn't it this book could not would not be the book that it is had you not been so kind of embedded in the scene
1: yes i think so i mean as i said there were not that many writers and i think that people liked my my style and Mm. um it was actually it was David Geffen who set it up for me to attend the Crosby, Stills, and Nash sessions. So I was in. I I was there for most of the later sessions of that first album's recording, and then I became friends with those people. Of course, I didn't spend so much time with them.
0: Did you have any sense, Ellen, of how big? This was all going to get, you know. Just for example, how, what it, what a kind of oh, yeah. mogul David Geffen was going to become. Let alone Crosby, Stills, Nash, and then Young becoming, you know, one of the the very biggest bands of of the of the era. I did, did. You think this. I did. Yeah. I
1: I mean, when I heard it, I mean, it was just it was just so phenomenal. And I was hearing a lot of stuff, and I knew how far beyond what I was hearing that was. And plus the personalities were just so vivacious. They were just very, very present people, as well as extraordinary musicians.
0: Mark and I were talking about the chapter that pertains to you know, Abby Hoffman and, oh, and wow. Paul Crass, yes. which which I had slightly forgotten because I read the book a long time ago. So I came back to it and reread it. And that that's pretty extraordinary as well as a slight kind of, you know, offshoot from what was happening in, well, in no, music.
2: Well, no, because the, the
0: politics and the music was were so entwined yes. Entwined at the time, yeah. Yes, exactly. And Abby Hoffman, yeah. of course, you know. But pissed, when Abby Hoffman to tried to, like,
1: colonize the music for his own purposes, I like really yes. called him on it. Well, I mean,
2: that fantastic is an open letter to Abby that you you wrote, which is basically telling, telling me his politics sucks, you know, to all intents and
1: purposes. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I mean, I didn't go that far, but I just said, you can't have the music. It's not yours. You know, it it doesn't, it's not for you. And, you know, he just really felt that he could colonize it, that, Mm -hmm. you know, that he wanted that exposure and that popularity. And he, his politics were not quite in line with it, and when I wrote that piece, I wrote it for the uh, for the L.A. Free Press, and and, right. and John Carpenter told me that they there was like a huge fight in the editorial staff as to whether they wanted to publish it or not.
0: Oh, really? Well,
2: sure. because criticizing someone like Abby Hoffman wasn't really allowed in certain circles. Is, is 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 it that? Is it?
1: I think the journalists, you know, I mean, Abby Hoffman was such a good subject that. Yeah. Yes, you know, and people were, there were people who were sympathetic with his politics. Sure. But, uh, you know, sure. I mean, and I was, not I was too at first, because, well, he's very engaging. But yeah, he, I, I just basically felt he was an actor that had found a part at the end. Yes. And at the end, yeah. he went down for, you know, for dealing cocaine.
2: Right. Yeah. And then there's of course, your extraordinary Led Zeppelin chapter. I mean, this is what, our second tour in 1969, is that correct, when you went on the road with At Led Lisa? Zeppelin?
1: Yes, yes. It was lucky it was their breakout tour, so you could just see sure. that happening. I I always knew. I mean, that was another thing the minute I heard them, that they were going to be huge. Right. But basically sold the story to Life magazine as it was going to be a road story. Yeah. And they just they were just, you know, curious about the lifestyle. They said to me, don't write about the music. Our readers don't want to read about the music. That's just right. too esoteric. We want to know personality, events, lifestyle, this, you
2: know. No, it's an extraordinary piece <laughs> because it, it's quite exhausting because everyone's exhausted. You're, talking, you're, you're going around the country with these guys who are absolutely into their ropes, but also then there's a slight difficult, sinister undercurrent. And, of course, at the end of it, where you're attacked by two of them is, is shocking.
1: Yes, it
0: shocked me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's clear that one of those two, I think, was Richard Cole, who you certainly had a pretty low opinion of, the late Richard Cole, who I knew a little bit. And I guess we have to infer who the other one was. And I don't know whether you've ever – have you ever sort of okay, come – Okay, so that's
1: when, you know, we had to take that out, particularly in the UK where the libel laws are much stricter than they are yeah. here – and i'm in favor of that i don't think people should be able to smear other people sure. and not be called to task for it so you know that's you know something that from the beginning i knew actually it was in there but it had to come out so that's one of the things that had to come out but I will not tell you other things that had to come out Barney because the reason they had to come out was because you can't talk about them (laughs)
0: exactly but it is an extraordinary account of what life must have been like and as you say I think you said was not easy was not the best fit to be an embedded female journalist in the Led Zeppelin camp that's probably putting it mildly. Were you, was it as long as 3 weeks that you were on on the road?
1: I didn't mind it until until that happened, until that accident right. yeah.
0: happened. Okay. I,
1: it was difficult, but you know but, but I mean it was difficult anyway being a woman, you know. Not yeah. not yeah. with the business and not with the acts, but with my contemporaries, you know, it was it was just difficult being a woman. So, you know, basically they would just assume that there was something wrong with my character or my behavior that, you know, that Mm -hmm. let me that gave me this access. And that was not true. But I was constantly having to deal with that. So but I was fine I was fine with you know whatever the Led Zeppelin because I knew what a story it was, you know. And then when that incident happened, I went like, you know I'm not I'm gonna I'm not gonna contribute to this anymore. I'm just I'm just out of it. And It really worked out well because I could never have written the story that I wrote for Life magazine. Right. So, you know, it ended ended up – they paid me anyway. They paid me really well. And I wasn't going to ever think about it again. I just put it behind me and moved on. And then when I was writing the book and I came across all those notes, I said, this is so good. You know, why don't I just put my feelings aside and, you know, just deal with it as a piece of writing. And by that time, I could do that. I couldn't always –
2: how many years after the tour did you write that bit? Did you did you put maybe that down? two,
1: right? Maybe hmm. let's see, six years. no, a year and a half or something, right? You okay. know, yeah. it was one of the last things I wrote because I was I was very uncertain about sure. about writing it, but but I kept looking at the notes and going like, you know, this is just a great story, and it I, really I didn't is. know whether or not. You know, uh, and I—I I didn't know whether to put the assault in or not, and then I was mm-hmm. encouraged that, that that's that's really part of the story. But by yes. that time, they had had a reputation, so you know, so yeah. nobody questioned it. And plus, there were there were witnesses. So, yeah, I mean, in a se-
2: in a sense that that you follow on from that, where you you meet the plaster casters of Chicago, and a, a very I think very sympathetic portrayal of these young women in in that
1: they were peculiar delightful mi- they were so funny I re- yeah we, we got along so well I mean I met them and we laughed for an entire weekend that's right. how that story got written they were just so they they had a great attitude about everything yeah. <laughs> I'd never met people like that before they're so young that's great <laughs>
2: No, that's a, fa- it's a fantastic chapter. And, you know, the whole groupy phenomenon generally was a very specific to sort of that time and place in a certain sort of way. And it, it, it is, a cl- I suppose, a clumsy way for people to express liberation. Would that be a fair thing to say?
1: We never really thought about it that way. People were just doing things because they could. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. the plastic casters were different than the other groupies that I'd met. The other groupies that I'd met were very glamorous girls. You know, right. they were as much into their own glamour as they were into grouping. But these girls, these girls were artists. <laughs> they, were, yes. they, they, weren't, they weren't glamorous, you know. <laughs> One of their fathers was a cop. Yes. So they just figured, you know, well, we're not, you know, we're not glamorous. We need to do something. And then Cynthia comes up with this idea because she was in art school at the time. Right. Uh, she's still around and we're still in touch, you know? No, she did die, but we were still in touch. Uh, right. A long time later, she kept sending me, she would send these Christmas cards and they were all phallic designs on her Christmas <laughs> cards. <laughs> I'm telling you, I never laughed so much. I had, you know, I mean, I wasn't sympathetic. I just love them. They were just the yeah. greatest kids, you know? That's great. And they were just, Part of everything and
2: her legal victory over herb Cohen was just one of the a triumph of sorts as I think that we you know we, we we all kind of waved a flag for that one that was that was that was fantastic
0: yeah I love the fact that in yeah. the um the piece you wrote for Paul Craston's magazine, The Realist, the famous piece, "The Case of the Cocksure Groupies," you you mentioned that Herb Cohen, who is the manager, obviously of like the GTOs and others, had come up with the idea of making lollipops out of the the plaster casts.
1: Well, that's what that's what Cynthia told me. Herb <laughs> didn't tell me
0: that. We had we had um, Pamela Debar. On the podcast, just uh, uh, two or three episodes ago, so we were we were talking a fair amount about about that phenomenon and sort of what it means now, and I guess how one looks back on it rather differently. It's a rather more complicated thing, perhaps now than it than it was then. But that piece is, you know, is a sort of landmark kind of artifact in that history.
1: My title for that piece was The Plaster Casters of Chicago, and Paul Krasner changed it to oh. The Taste of the Cocksure Groupies, which I don't like. Not right.
3: Sure. No. I think but your headline it, is it kind of centers them in a much better way. It kind of makes it about what, what they're actually doing rather than kind of, uh, I don't know, sensationalizing it in a way that's, that uh, yeah.
1: That's editors for you, but uh, Paul yeah. is, uh, <laughs> Paul's a good friend and uh, one of the best – Editors in the business, and he gave me the assignment. Nobody else would.
0: I wanted to ask you about Jack Holtzman if you're okay to talk about Jack because such oh, yes, an Jack important. Jack I are
1: still close. Yes. I
0: figured you probably would be.
1: We have a son together.
0: You have a, have a son together, absolutely, Marin.
1: Marin, and he, Marin, Marin. yes, and he's uh, 50, fifty-one years old, and and I have a
0: a grandchild. Yeah, how lovely. Where does Marin live? Does he live in Marin County? Does he have to live in Marin no, County li- just he, by law?
1: He was no. born in Marin County, but he lives in
0: Brooklyn, New York. Okay, excellent.
1: Not far from where my mother immigrated to uh, after World War One. Oh, really?
0: Oh, wow.
2: Okay. But where from? Where were your family from originally?
1: My father is German. Right. And he came over in the 30s. And my mother is from a region that was near the Ukraine-Poland border called Galicia, right. which no longer right.
2: exists. Okay, gotcha. I just you just kind of get that, 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 that picture in my
0: head. There. Yes. No, that's my okay. ethnic background. I'm first-generation American. Right. Ellen, uh, just to ask ask you about Jack, because you're such an important figure in the story of, like, 60s and 70s American rock, folk rock, and and so forth. You met him, I think, in, what, 69? Oh, gosh. I'm not sure. I think I met him before then. Okay, okay you might you crossed his path um but it, it it sounds from i've read this this book follow the music this the electoral oh, yeah. history which has got amazing quotes from you in it and and i think you talk about your first sort of romantic date is when the beatles let it be album is just about to come out and and jack's got a kind of an advanced acetate of it and and plays that to yes, in in the you yes, he, yes. Uh,
1: Paul nelson Paul Nelson told me that Jack played it for him. And I knew Jack already, you know, just from the business and everything. And I asked him if he would play it for me. And he said, sure. And would you have dinner with me too? And I said, sure. One
0: of the things I love in that book is your description of going to Synanon, if I'm pronouncing it correctly with jack and there's this there's this in sort of confrontation session where judy collins starts giving jack a really hard time about not being paid enough money do you recall that (laughs) that sounds extraordinary uh, and Jack rather yeah. taken aback, uh, to put it mildly.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I, I almost forgot about that. I did forget about that. Yes, it was it was an, something called an encounter group. Mm. And Judy said, I don't think it's right that you make more money from my records than I do. <laughs> Which is a fair point. Yeah, fair, <laughs> fair
2: enough.
1: Well, you know, Jack said, you don't have the overhead that I have yeah, to produce yeah. those records. Yeah. You know. Did you know
2: him? Because Electra started in New York, didn't it? it as a basically as a folk label. Is that correct? Did you know him back then? Did you know him in New York before the, the operation moved out to the West Coast?
1: I knew of him, but I hadn't met him. I knew of right. him. I yeah, certainly yeah. had all of those records. Yes.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Did you meet artists like Jim Morrison through through Jack?
1: I had seen the doors before I knew Jack, but I had certainly spent more time with Jim Morris and another artist after I knew Jack.
0: Did you ever meet Arthur Lee of Love? No, he was probably on a different label by the time you met Jack. But it's fascinating to me. I mean, I've, no, I've no, inter- no.
1: He was, he was, he was. I loved Love, and he, yes. he was on Elektra, and I wrote the liner notes for one of their albums. But I never, oh, wow. I never met him. But I heard stories.
0: yeah so after trips came out and we've got this great picture i'm sure you're aware of of the the launch for trips and the picture is, is is this jack is in the background and you're standing there with jackson brown who i guess is has just been signed by david geffen did you have much to do with geffen and robert's and asylum when when you were in on the west coast did you did you sort of write about people like jackson
1: no i i actually did write about jackson in an article that uh, never appeared because the magazine folded before they could publish it but, well, I certainly wrote about Joni, and I certainly wrote about Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And mm-hmm. uh, although they were on Atlantic, but no, I didn't. I didn't hang out in, in
0: Asylum much. Were you I didn't going write about the Eagles? Were you sort of going back and forth between the East Coast and the West Coast? What would what would what would you have said was home? Was South Salem home? Tranquility base, the house that you you had with Jack. That was was that home at that point home was our new york uh, apartment and i lived in tranquility base but
1: not long after we started living there i got pregnant so i didn't so i didn't work as much then
0: and trips came out in 73 by which time uh-huh. you and jack had broken up but what so what what was what was life like after trips I know you you bought the house in Bolinas and you wrote a book about that house later and you were there for a number of years I think so what was what was the rest of your 70s like and were you did you keep up with with the artists that you had got to know that you'd written about in that era or or were you Somewhat removed from the kind of explosion of the business in that decade.
1: That's a, a good question. Marin County itself had a very a thriving music scene, a local yes. music scene, which which consisted of musicians that had become famous in in the sixties and a lot of other musicians too, and uh, also uh, people that I didn't have contact with up until that point. So I kept up with it as a local scene. But I worked on trips until, you know, I turned it in in 72. And it was supposed to be published in 72. But it was just, I think what happened is they slip it to the next year because reviewers don't like to review books that are published in the same year. So, it was, so I think it was actually, you know, the, the, the first copies were out in 72, but it's a 73. The galleys right. were out in 72. And, and, and the book was out in 73 just to catch catch that extra time to get reviews. So um I I had a family yeah, at the time, you know, I had uh Marin was an infant. So I mostly had a home life and I was just discovering a a different a different kind of life. And then I finally could had the chance to uh pay attention to poetry again. There were loads of poets in Lenus. I mean extraordinary people, Tom Clark, Robert Greeley, Joanne Riger. Right. Aram Saroyan, and all the all these people and they were uh, larry from we called him larry yeah it, yeah he just had a birthday you know so that was very compelling for me and it was just a whole other invigoration of my artistic sensibility it just allowed me to write what I'd been wanting to write all along. With all this additional inspiration and stimulation, it was a remarkable time for me in Bolinas. Yeah,
2: yeah. It it, it changed
1: it changed my life just as much as rock and roll in the sixties did. And then as this, as the seventies progressed, I became less and less attached to the rock and roll scene. And as far as staying in touch with all of those artists. Basically, that relationship is transactional, you know right. I write the story, they want to see the st- they want the story well done I write the story it's It's not kind of a you know it' it's it's not that kind of friendship that continues, of course, a few were, but not not many, and also, my neighbors were Paul Kantner and Grace Slick, and their baby. So, yeah. you know, obviously I kept in touch with them because I, I saw them every week, uh, but until they moved back to San Francisco, because Grace couldn't stand it being out in this mix. <laughs> 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 uh, but I mean
2: – so, were you reading the Beat poets when you were much younger? When you were in New York, what was was Beat? Oh because yes,
1: I'm... oh yes. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I actually, you know, wished that I was older and I could have been in <laughs> Columbia at the same time. It's, um, yes, of course, I love the Beat poets, and when I was in Bolinas, I became friends with Allen Ginsberg because he would visit right. a lot.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And Robert Cree, Rob, Rob, Robert Creeley was a sort of second-generation beat poet himself,
1: wasn't he? So the, um, the, He was really post-beat. You know, he didn't like being associated with the beats because stylistically uh, he doesn't really have a lot in common with them. But, he, I mean, he's more associated with something called the Black Mountain poets, right. which is kind of an esoteric thing that only poets, yeah, yeah. you know, really care about. But, uh, but he, you know, <laughs> he was... Those poets were considered, you know, post beat the San Francisco Renaissance, or they had, you know, I mean, different names. Ever since Ezra Pound, every era and every style of poetry had to have this name. (laughs) Yeah. So that's a whole other story. But suffice it to say that being surrounded by that many poets of that caliber Mm -hmm. was was extraordinary for me and, and was. Just as life changing as being a part of the the '60s revolution was,
0: right. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, just in summation, uh, I, I think Trips is one of you know the key sort of texts of of that era. And if anyone listening wants to get a kind of better sense of what it was like to live through the kind of upheaval cultural revolution at that time, I, I can't recommend any yeah. book
2: m- also, more also- than I would
0: that. It's also just great storytelling. You are a really,
2: really great storyteller, and I have to say, reading Thank trips, you. reading trips has been just you know,
0: fascinating. So thanks for talking Thank to you. us about trips.
1: In its time, people thought it was too girlish. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's fun. ridiculous. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's some hilarious thing. Terry Southern, the late Terry Southern, wrote the forward and. He has this incredibly patronising little remark at the end of his foreword where he sort of says, this, there's some little catty remark about about the girlishness of, of the book. I found it quite extraordinary. I, anyway, I, look. I'm it's very, very wonderful-
1: happy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I know. But I, actually, in a curious kind of way, the, 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 that makes it more modern as a piece of reading, mm. you know, oddly enough, that you... you You never disguise who you are, what you're doing, what your desires, what your needs are, and so on and so forth. It reads very, very contemporary.
1: I deal with that in the foreword, which I hope Mm -hmm. you get to read, Barney. And so, uh, yes, in in hindsight, you know, I'm just very glad that I I wasn't so self-conscious that I would not allow that girlishness to come through. Because... I'm 100% girl, what are you going to say? You know? <laughs> Quite so. I think it's just great that you that
3: you have a perspective that you take and that, that that perspective allows different things to shine through. And I think it's, you know, as Mark said, it does read contemporary as a result because it's a perspective that one doesn't read that often from that time period. And it's great to get to yes, do that. Yes,
1: because it was not particularly respected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But did yeah. I care? <laughs> <laughs> good for you you. it's great
0: yeah yeah we should talk about the week's new audio interview ellen if you if if it sort of prompts you to chip in with anything please do but the reason that we are adding a robert palmer interview from i think it's 1994 is because there's a compilation of nine albums robert's nine island records albums i think it's called the island records years so it's it's a box set consisting of every from the wonderful sneaking Sally through the alley right through to Riptide from 1985 so that seemed like a good pretext to add our first um, Palmer interview by Andy Gill and it's at a time when an album called Honey uh, has just come out and he's sort of dabbling in bossa nova so so that's there is a there's a song called Honeymoon on Honey which is which is Robert doing Bossa Nova. Um, the rest of the album isn't necessarily in that vein, but he was really getting into sort of João Gilberto in a big way. So so maybe if we listen to this clip, it sort of contextualizes the moment that he's speaking in.
4: Touchdown and as your water sun stays out all day. On Beach outside our room. I've been writing songs in a Bossa Nova vein. I love the uh, sophistication of the, the structure in the, in the music, melodically. Uh, and it's been my ambition to get one together that existed just as guitar and vocal, but with all the sophistication of the movement within just the guitar and the vocal. And I finally got it on this uh, new album. Uh, it's, so, um, it's so naked when you put a piece together like that that uh, in order for, for it for me to be fulfilling satisfying musically it 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 takes a lot of pre-production you know you've got to know exactly what it in, there's there's no room for uh, error <laughs> to the beat of samba nova lovers gently sway twilight passes cool sea breezes play our favorite
3: not easy to get everything out of, a, out of you want out of a bossa nova on just guitar and vocal. <laughs> um,
2: and then he sort of goes back in time, talks about his first pro gig with the Alan bound set, then the bands that followed, which was basically a band called Dada who morphed into Vinegar Joe. I actually saw Dada supporting Yes and the Iron Butterfly at the Albert Hall in 71. Uh, they made virtually no impact. But anyway, so this takes us up to his first solo album, um, Sneak and Sally Through the Alley and uh, with an extraordinary band basically backed by the meters in New Orleans and with Lowell George. So let's have a listen to this clip. This is about working with Lowell George, the great Lowell George.
4: What's Lowell like? Well, what was his life? There's a piece, actually, in The Current Mojo about Lowell George. Was he the world's greatest evangelist? (laughs) Oh, no, no, not at all. No, no. No, I didn't seem like that at all. He was uh, extremely witty, extremely bright, uh, um, a sort of surreal sort of wit, and um, basically a workaholic. played all the time. I mean, uh, he liked to be high, but it, it it didn't seem to be uh, like uh, it, it just day and night. All he did was make music, and uh, I'd never met him until we met in New Orleans, and it was like just instant. And uh, I mean, like after the first couple of songs, he said, "Look." Uh, I've got a group, you know. I said, "Yeah, hey, I know you have." He says, <laughs> uh, "How about you come on sing with that my band?" I said, "Yeah." He went, "You know." So I went and I joined up with a band. I went on the road for six months.
2: Fantastic stuff. I love his... his oh, no. His, 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 his broad Yorkshire tones. You fantastic. could take the boy out of Batley, but
0: you can't, <laughs> you can't take Batley out of
2: the boy. Um, absolutely, um, absolutely not. Um, then he talks about sort of the unlikely things, like his working with Gary Newman, which is not someone would have predicted, and on a fantastic album, The Clues album. Hilarious story about working with Rick Danko and Garth Hudson, and Garth Hudson playing accordion and because he sings along with himself tunelessly. They had to put a, um, a, a, an all-encompassing motorcyclist crash helmet over him while he was playing the accordion part, just so that it wouldn't. they, they could mute his vocal, <laughs> which is just, just a great story. Uh, he talks about working the, the marvellous James Jameson, the great bassist James Jameson, uh, and so on and so forth. He talks about working with Dr. John, uh, uh, and he, he just comes over, actually, just this really charming guy. I, I like
0: the cut of his jib. It's a lovely, lovely interview, isn't it? And yeah. it r- reminds one that, I think, Chris Blackwell, who obviously signed him to Ireland, called him something like the, the biggest music nerd he'd ever met um, of all his artists. It, it, Robert was was one of the most curious and informed across a lot of different genres. Yeah, yeah. And, and this interview is really, it's, it's the late Andy Gill, asking him about it must be like between sort of 10 to 15 different people that robert's worked with and just getting a little story yeah yeah about he's,
2: he's very very funny about working with lee the great lee, lee, perry, lee
0: perry in, in, exactly. in jamaica
3: <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
0: <laughs> ellen i'm just in, in this vein i wanted to just ask you about your memories of singers like british singers like robert palmer taking i suppose sort of taking a lot of american music and uh, and turning it into something of their own i mean were you were you aware of of someone like robert palmer of bands like vinegar joe touring in the states obviously you went on the road with zeppelin but did you have the sense of of uh in a, a sort of british appropriation of american rhythm and blues soul and and funk which which you know was was a sort of big big kind of phenomenon in a way wasn't it
1: let me just say this about that i think if it weren't for those british kids in the 60s we would have lost the blues we would have Mm. lost the blues except for you know in the smithsonian or or you know the the uh documentary recordings that were that were being done but as as a popular art form they would have been lost and uh so we we owe those British Invasion kids, the the yard birds and and people of that ilk, everything here. You know, it wasn't until I went to Brazil that I really felt like there was a difference between American rock and roll and British rock and roll. But it was the Brits that started it all. It was the mm-hmm. Brits that explored those roots yeah. and other roots that we weren't aware aware of, like Skiffle and ska, and things like that. That that became of interest here. And the esoteric English folk music, the the incredible string band were yeah, yeah. Um, enormously popular. So that's what I have to say about that. I was aware, you know, you could not help but be aware of of the influence of, of British yeah. music and the fun of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. Lovely. For any subscribers, it is a delightful thing to listen to this Robert Palmer interview. Ooh, I- Also on the homepage, fellow Island Records artists Roxy Music. So the main feature is essentially marking the fiftieth anniversary of Roxy Music's magnificent second album, *For Your Pleasure*. The Charles Shaw Murray's *Rave Enemy* review and a great Melody Maker piece with Brian Ferry actually talking his way through the album from do the strand to the title track. And that's great. And then Rob Tannenbaum revisiting the album in 2019 for pitchfork. Also the long read is a piece about the strokes as a singles anthology just come out. Ted Kessler in America with the strokes in 2001 and the long goodbye. We were saying goodbye to the, to the soul singer, Chuck Jackson, who is just a real exemplar of that Uptown Soul style. So there's three pieces about um, Chuck Jackson, whose probably, probably most famous hit was probably Any Day Now, the Bacharach song, but whose most extraordinary record, I say was, I would say, was I Keep Forgetting, as produced by Lieber and Stoller.
4: I keep forgetting you don't love me no more. I keep forgetting you don't want me no more.
0: I keep forgetting that you told me that you... Ellen, would you, that sort of you almost kind of East Coast, New York, soul sure. style. Do you remember Chuck Jackson and, and and people like that, singers like that from that era?
1: Oh, yeah. That was the dance music, you know, of our high school. And everybody in, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, soul music was always a part of rock and roll, starting in the, starting in the 50s. Mm. So Chuck Berry, all of those, the, the Supremes, yeah. You know, and and they of course led the way to like older artists, but even in the South, those artists were were still touring. So anything reminiscent of that was just wonderful to have.
2: That rather neatly leads me onto one of the articles new in the library this year: Michael Lydon, nineteen sixty-eight, big piece in the New York Times on BB King, where he's basically on the road in Louisiana and Mississippi with the BB King and his band and it's 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 absolutely fantastic stuff i mean they, they get you know it's they're, do, they're playing the, the old chitlin circuit that's exactly what they're playing they're playing these small halls and small places out in the boondocks uh, sometimes getting paid one of the gigs the promoter gives them 400 rather than 500 cuz there weren't enough people in the room all of those sorts of things the band get attacked by racists trying to get a sandwich at a, 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 a stopping at night in a, a bar in louisiana it's a really extraordinary piece so he's, he's um, bb says things like you know i'm different from the old blues people i don't smoke or drink on stage unlike the new ones i don't dance i'm just not electrifying i figure that's the singing and the playing that people come for and that's what i give them uh, uh, he also says a lot of white people can't sing the blues because their english is too good Blues and correct English don't sound right. You've got to break the verbs for it to be the blues, which (laughs) I I really like. (laughs) Moving on to Burt Bacharach, interviewed by David Toop, GQ 1996. Of course, Burt died, what, a week or two ago. And he says, "I could never make love to music because I'm not into the woman. I'm into wait. What did the saxophone play in the sixth bar? Oh man, Jesus, that was no good. So I love this idea that <laughs> he simply can't have sex whilst listening to music because the music takes over.
1: Had that problem."
2: <laughs> <laughs> also, um, last week, we ran the first piece of a of three-parter by Maureen Cleave on the Beatles, the year of the Beatles, which is, um, this is October 63. And this week, it's more of an interview than sort of anything else. And John Lennon says things like, I don't suppose I think much about the future. I don't really give a damn, though now we've made it it'd be a pity to get bombed. It's selfish, but I don't care too much about humanity. I'm an escapist. And he says, I get spasms of being intellectual. I read a bit about politics. I don't think I'd vote for anyone. No messages from any of those phony politicians are coming through to me. I mean, she's getting, she's getting this stuff in 1963 from John Lennon. Mm, mm, you yeah, know, yeah. She says, seriously good good, good music journalism. Though Ringo says, I'm lucky, aren't I? I'm sort of a name and I earn a good wage. As far as food goes, a steak is a steak, isn't it? Though down here they call chips French fried. So that's 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 where we go. This week also Petty Valentine in uh, Disc Music Echo in 1966 reviewing the Beach Boys. She says Beach Boys new single and it's a work of art. Good vibrations. What can you say about a work of art other than stating that it is? This record is a shattering experience. It is long and split like a classical piece in separate movements. It is Brian Wilson's reply to anybody who thinks of pop music as something flippant and thoughtless. You can listen to it and find something new at every turn of the black plastic surface it is imprinted on. Please do. I mean, this is, again, it's terrific. This is, you know, young woman writing for Disco Music Echo review, gets Good Vibrations and reviews it. Just fabulously, so I think I so yeah, no, it's just 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 terrific. Lastly, Matt Groening, the creator of The Simpsons, interviewed by Richard Gare and Spin in '93, he says, I find so much contemporary music, pop music boring because I just don't believe in the intensity of the singer, no matter how much they squint and grimace. Has the same intensity and sound of a Dodge commercial. So that's 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 <laughs> Matt telling us. So, there, that's my
0: lot, chaps. Lovely. I'm not going to quote from anything, but I'm just going to mention one piece, partly because this morning I saw that Leonie Cooper, I think it's a former NME writer, had written a piece for Time Out online here in the UK entitled, Why is everyone in London obsessed with Steely Dan right now? And I noticed, Mark, (laughs) that you had added... A Steely Dan piece from 1973, Judas Sims for Rolling Stone. Yeah. And so I just wanted to flag that up. And I suppose the obvious answer to Leonie Cooper's question is because of our Rock's Back Pages anthology, Major Dudes. Which is a (laughs) compilation of all the best pieces of Steely Dan. You really think so, do you, Barney? But I love the fact that uh, all these sort of movies and shakers and sort of hipsters in Hackney right now are so obsessed by Steely Dan that they're regularly attending playbacks of Asia and so forth in, you know, East London cinemas. It's, it's, It's rather heartening as a Steely Dan obsessive i'm rather pleased so <laughs> i think that's it from me um handing over to you now jasper
3: just briefly to mention three things first of which is an interview with paramour hayley williams of Paramore, paul lester in the guardian in 2010 and sort of half mentioning it because they just have a new album out emo sort of rock band still going and not really making emo anymore as it turns out but one thing just made me laugh. Haley Williams is super nostalgic for the pre-fame era before the Platinum Records and the red carpets and photo shoots when it was all splitter vans and, quote, eating at 7-Elevens for free because we told them we were Nickelback.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just really
3: made me chuckle because I can't imagine debasing oneself to call even even for a free meal to call oneself nickelback <laughs>
0: yes you have to be pretty shameless don't you <laughs>
3: yeah uh, just made me chuckle um and then moving on to john doran interviewing trent Reznor in the quietest in march 2014 and there's one thing in it where they they played the grammys nine inch nails played the the grammy sort of finale but initially Trent Reznor didn't want to do it and you can kind of understand that but then they did do it because they were sort of thinking what if if we did take it on what what if we could do something with integrity he he says it's a seductive concept the idea of doing something that doesn't suck in front of an audience that large no robots no explosion no gymnasts and then you, you, they want to invite Lindsey Buckingham out and and Dave Grohl plays with them and they kind of get into the idea. And then what do the Grammys do? They ran ads in the middle of the of the performance. They ran an ad for Delta in the middle of the show. So Trent Trent Reznor's not not best pleased about that. So, uh, just thought that tied into what you're saying about adverts earlier, Mark. But yeah, he's never playing the Grammys again, is what he says. And then lastly, a bit of self-indulgence. I added our first, I thought it was high time we had a, a Jacob Collier piece on the site. And the easiest one for me to locate was one that I wrote myself about uh, (laughs) six years ago. (laughs) I just thought it would be funny. So you didn't have to run
0: this by anybody else. You You didn't have to run this past any editorial committee.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I just love Jacob Collier. I think he's, he's a really, really interesting musician. He does so many different things. I thought it was cool to add a thing about him. And there's a bit of, there's a bit of original journalism in that piece, which is that I actually asked, his sister, who I knew for a while at that time, because she went out with a flatmate of mine, for a piece of original information to include in the article. And she, she informed me that uh, he has a tin of Heinz beans for lunch every day. So that's the, that's the hot scoop the World news. Exclusive. Breaking news.
0: <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, well thanks for that Jasper I look forward to reading it and we have heard you have played Jacob Collier in the office and we've enjoyed we've enjoyed it very much well listen do visit Rocksback pages where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and listen to over 800 audio interviews check to see if your local library subscribes to rbp and if not maybe suggest they take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. Many thanks to our special guest, Alan Sander. Do read her brilliant book, Trips, Rock Life in the 60s, published in an augmented edition by, I think it's Dover Publications, is that correct? Yes. In 2019. It's a must read for all listeners to this podcast. (laughs) And, you know, just... Thanks so much for joining us, Alan. It's been a real a real yeah. treat to 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 speak with you today. So goodbye. Bye.
2: Bye. Bye.
3: That concludes episode 147 of the Rocks Back Pages Podcast. Many thanks to special guest Ellen Sander. Trips Rock Life in the Sixties is published by Dover and available now from all good bookshops. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.